Um, I want to take just a moment as we begin to kind of explain what we're going to do for the next eight weeks and why. Uh, human beings are terrible multitaskers. And so whenever we do anything, uh, we, we focus. So consider when you use a pencil. Your hand is gripping that pencil. The grip you have on that pencil matters. But you don't actually think about your hand holding the pencil. And if you do, you can't write. Right? You're focusing on the wrong place. Instead, you embody the pencil and you focus on the tip. The tip becomes an extension of you. Okay? It'd be the same with a scalpel uh, or anything else. Uh, it is the same in the way that we think. Okay? When we think, we think through a framework. We look through a window or a lens. And we cannot both look through the window and stop and look at the window itself. Okay. What I think we need to do as Christians, and this is generally true in our whole lives, sometimes we need to stop and inspect our tools. Sometimes we need to pause and say, is this the right window to look through? Is it framing the issues in the right way? Okay. This series is not so much going to lay out a Christian political platform as it is going to place politics in a Christian worldview. Okay. And that's essential because if we don't get the first questions right, we're almost guaranteed to go wrong in the second questions. If we don't understand how politics uh, is connected to God's design for humanity, to what Jesus has accomplished on the cross, to what the church is and is called to, to what it is when we say the kingdom of God. If we don't do that, then we will make mistakes just because we've already defined the framework in the wrong way. In other words, we'll answer the wrong questions because we don't know what questions to ask first. Okay? And so <clears throat> what we're going to do then um, is walk through the Bible somewhat chronologically, at least in the beginning, to talk about uh, how the ideas, the concepts, the activities of politics fit into this whole story of God's uh, design for humanity, into the whole story of redemption. In other words, how does the concepts of politic and politics and political engagement fit in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation? And so, it's no surprise this morning that we're going to begin in the first two chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2. And the reason is really simple. It's, it's two reasons. Um, one is... Because often the way that the Bible is used politically is primarily as a proof text. We already have our platform, our position, our posture, our opinions, and then we open the Bible and we look for things that validate that. Okay? Um, but the problem is we don't read the Bible from nowhere. right? We always read it from a position, a posture. And again, not only, uh, can, not only should the Bible critique everyone else or the world as it is, describing what's wrong with the world, First, it has to critique us. First, we have to allow it to do that. And so one of the nice things about beginning in Genesis is that in Genesis 1 and 2, it's primarily pre-cultural. We're talking here not about uh, customs of human life, but from a biblical perspective, design, God's building of things. Okay? Um, the second reason uh, is because Genesis 1 and 2 are unique 
in the Bible, along with Revelation 20 and 21 at the end of our Bible, uh, as being the only ones that are outside the fallen nature of the world as we know it. Okay? And so one of the great things about looking at Genesis is we can say, how did things pre-exist before things went wrong? What was the good before the bad? In fact, that is essential for us to discover this morning. Before we can ask, how should we engage politically, we have to understand if the aspects, the facets that make up how politics work, are they good? Is there any value in them? Is politics innately merely a necessary evil? Is it something that is inherently dirty? One of the things we're going to talk about this morning is power. And many of us are convinced that power is inherently part of what's wrong with the world. That assessment leaves us in a stuck place, okay, as we'll see this morning. And so the last reason we're going to look at Genesis 1 and 2 is because we're going to focus on the nature of humanity. And let's just recognize that politics or government or these types of things are primarily about humans. Even if our politics touch the environment... We're not policing the environment, are we? We're policing humans in their involvement with the environment. We don't pass rules for sheep or wolves or lions, right? Politics is primarily a human concept, a human way of being, and so it's appropriate to begin by saying, what does it mean to be human? And how does that touch on these things? And so if you've got a Bible this morning, open it right up to the beginning, to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 records the creation of the world, and it's laid out in these consecutive days of God speaking into existence the world as we know it. And as he does so, as he creates the world, he goes through five days, he makes the light and the darkness, the sky and the earth and the water, he populates the water with fish and sea life, he populates the earth with animal life, he populates the air with birds, and then here on the sixth day, he makes human beings. And what I want to focus on is just verses 26 through uh, 28 this morning, so let's read them together. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. Let's pray. Father, as we look uh, at this passage this morning, um, I pray that we would better understand ourselves in your design. I ask, Lord, that the same Spirit who authored this passage 
your Holy Spirit who led the authors of Scripture to write as they did, would fulfill his promise to give us understanding this morning. In fact, Lord, we just ask that you would instruct us, that you would teach us. We pray that you'd help us with this in Jesus' name. Amen. What I want you to see primarily this morning is that there's a connection between this creator God who opens up in Genesis chapter 1 and creates the world, and populates the world, makes the world fruitful, and human beings in their plan, design, and destiny, who not just are put into this world, not just placed into this world, but have a position in this world that connects with that creator God. In fact, the key phrase in this passage is this idea that God has created humankind, male and female, rich and poor, high and low, powerful and weak, children and adults, human beings as a whole, in God's image. There's a connection there. And I want to look at this connection from a couple of different lenses this morning, all which are tremendously foundational for our series going forward, for our thinking politically. First and primarily, I want to focus on the fact that the image of God as it's laid out here establishes dignity for humanity as a whole. Okay? The idea here is that human beings, apart from any action they take, apart from their first breath or first step, apart from their behavior, be it good or bad, are stamped with the image of their creator. There's a connection there. There's a purpose there. Now, as theologians have talked about what it means to be created in God's image, they've drawn out a lot of connective tissue between us and God. In some ways, and notice it says after our likeness here, so that's appropriate. In some ways, uh, they've said there are ways that human beings are uniquely like God that the rest of creation is not. So we are rational. God is rational. We have our wills, our volition, and the ability to operate them, and God has his own will. Uh, we are capable of art. That's why G.K. Chesterton famously said that art is the signature of humanity. We can cultivate, we can create. All of those are ways that we are like God. God creates and we sub-create. We cultivate, we take what he has made and we make it into things. God has made sound and we make music, right? Okay. Um, but there's a second part here, which is that the idea of an image is not just that we are somehow like God, but that we are called to represent him. In fact, notice when God commissions human beings, he says be both be fruitful and multiply, and then he says have dominion. That dominion, that call to rule, is directly connected to God's dominion. It's representative. It's on his behalf. And again, in fact, this is really interesting but this idea of being created in the image of God in the ancient Near East, the time and place that the book of Genesis was written in, was not an unknown concept, but it was limited to royalty. 
It was something that was uniquely the divine right and the divine aspect of kings. That's why so often in the ancient world there was a correlation between a nation's gods and the king that ruled over them, a correlation that often led to worshiping the rulers of the world. And yet the image of God here in the creation narrative of Genesis is extended to all humanity equally. In other words, what I'm suggesting to you is this presses for an innate concept of human dignity for a couple of reasons. First, because human beings are made. And not made in a factory or a laboratory. Not made in a bedroom. But made by God. Part of his creation. Designed by God. Okay, and then second... That there's a destiny, a calling here, and even a comparison or a reflection that gives innate value. The way we treat other human beings is how we treat those who are designed and destined to image God, reflect God. And Jesus doubles down on this. In Matthew 25, He's talking about the poor, the vulnerable, those who are in prison, the hungry, the naked. And he divides all of humanity into two groups. And he says to those on the right side, he says, Come, enter into the joy that was set before me, because when I was naked, you clothed me. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was in prison, you visited me. And they say, When did we see you? He says, As much as you did this to the least of me, you have done it to me. Do you see the connection that Jesus is making? As we treat the image of God, so it shows how we treat God. Now, this foundation, of course, gives us a foundation for what we would call human rights. But I want you to notice that this foundation is deeper than other postulations of human rights. This is not merely autonomy. Humans are their own beings, and so you don't have the right to interfere with their autonomy. That definition doesn't go deep enough, and it tends to leave us in a place that has no foundation. Okay, they're autonomous, so what? I'm more powerful than they are. Why can't I use my powerful autonomy against your autonomy? Freedom is another way that we've tried to say. Rousseau, when he was laying out his idea of the social contract, which was his foundation for politics, he opens it saying, Mankind is born free, but everywhere is in chains. Freedom was his foundation. But again, we have a problem. Why? Why should human beings be free? For what reason should we respect the freedom of others? Equality is another one that's expressed, right? Even in our own governmental documents, we hold this truth to be self-evident, Right? That all are created equal. Now, our documents have an advantage. That word created gives us a little bit of a why. But if we just stand on equality alone, we don't get to the issue. But if human beings are the property of God, created by God with an intention, commissioned by God, given value and worth by being his image bearers, then ultimately this pushes us further because it makes... Again, our treatment of other human beings connected to our view of God. In other words, what I'm suggesting to you is that operating in a right view of human rights is not just about humanity, but divinity. 
It's not just a way of socializing, it's a way of worshiping. And it also, of course, comes with accountability. As you treat others, so you treat God. That foundation, as we can imagine, will become tremendously significant moving forward. But what's implied here is more than that. Not only do we see the dignity of humanity, but we also see delegation. You see, I think a lot of us stop with the image of God at that spot. Human rights. But delegation is significant here. Now, uh, actually, I don't even want to use the word delegation. I want to use the word deputizing. Okay? You know the history of that word, right? It's the Wild West. A sheriff doesn't have enough people. There's some sort of chaos in the city. And so he authorizes non-sheriffs as his deputies. Okay? He imbues them with his power and authority. Okay? That's what we see happening here. God deputizes humanity. He authorizes them. He empowers them. In fact, again, notice that there's a connection between these two things. And so God creates a world and it's abundant and fruitful. In fact, the word that's used for animal life in Genesis 1 is swarming. Okay, that's a whole lot of life. And then he turns to humanity, and what does he tell them? He blesses them and says, be fruitful and multiply. In fact, there's a sense where God has done this in all of creation. He doesn't just create a lot of animals. He creates them capable of creating more animals, right? Each according to its kind. He doesn't just create a lot of trees. He makes it so trees are fruitful, which creates more trees, right? The principle of life is built in to life, and that's by the plan of the life maker, But with human beings, it goes beyond that because of this idea of the image of God. All of creation lives to the glory of God. All of it reflects his beauty as creator. All of it demonstrates his goodness. But only human beings are made in his image. And they, as the capstone here of creation, are called to rule like he does. To have dominion like he does. Now, like I said, this deputization is more than delegation. The idea is not that God has built something and then he hands humanity the keys and walks away. Right? Deputization, like I said, involves an empowering. It involves an authorizing. In other words, I'm not suggesting here that God has given human beings permission to rule as they see fit. Here, I've created this whole world for you. As much as human beings are a significant capstone of creation, the story of Genesis 1 is not anthropocentric. It's not focused on human beings. God didn't create this world as a gift to human beings, as its most essential essential reason for being. Instead, in a certain way, he created human beings for the world. This is one of the things that's really striking about this passage that I think we can miss. And remember again, this authorization, this foundation for authority is amazingly egalitarian. This is what it means to be human, not what it means to be a governor. 
This is what it means to be human, not what it means to be a husband alone, but also a wife. Not what it means to be a king, but also a citizen. Broadly and most foundationally, God has authored human life, given them ability to cultivate, like I said earlier, to create in the way that God does. Now, a lot of us get really uncomfortable with that word dominion because it makes us think of domination. In fact, we can't really go any further without talking about power. Because that's what God is doing here. He is both empowering humanity and he is, um, he is entrusting them with power. Okay. I went digging for a passage last night out of C.S. Lewis in The Problem of Pain. Uh, C.S. Lewis, by the way, has a great ability, like we're trying to do this morning, to start way further back than you think you need to start. And so the first thing he starts talking about in pain, in the problem of pain, in the reality of suffering in the human life, is creation as God designed it. And what would it mean to have a world where just pain, not suffering, but pain, which he makes a different definition for, wasn't possible? And he basically says one of the things that makes possible pain is the fact that God has given us independent will and an environment that we can actually interact with, okay? And so he says, we can take a stick physically and hit someone with it. And that's because we live in a world where there's physical objects that are separate from us. And we live in a world that are, where there are physical people that are separate from us. And we, in a sense, are separate from God in that physicality, so we can do that. And then he says, but when we imagine a world without pain, a world without suffering, what is it that we're expecting? That every time a stick is swung in such a way that God just bends physics so that it doesn't make its impact? And he just points out we wouldn't be free, right? There wouldn't actually be any distance or extension or any identity for each one of us without the ability to change, to interact with, to impact our surroundings. And if we've learned anything from thousands of years of human history, it's that we as human beings have tremendous impact on the world around us. Did God create this building? No. The city that outlies this building? No. Did God cut down the trees to make the room for this city? Did it cultivate all the hundreds of breeds of dogs that we have? Right? All of these involve the the implementation of power. C.S. Lewis later in The Problem of Pain points out that a good deal of human suffering comes from just that place. When we ask the question, how can a good God exist with starvation and with war and with the atomic bomb, he says, did God invent torture? Those are uniquely human institutions. Now I think we're set up to understand why we have such reservations about power. Like the words of Lord Acton, right? Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Right? That's our flagship statement about power. Most of this stems from Friedrich Nietzsche, okay, the German philosopher who basically said all of human life is basically the need to dominate. There's only so much to go around, and my desire is to have all of it. And so what we have in human life is just a butting up of one will against another, and even, he says, when we come together, we come together with short ends to accomplish our own denomination, or uh, domination conveniently. I don't think we understand how deeply ingrained that philosophy is in our culture, in us. But... 
we need to restore a better understanding of power this morning. Okay. Uh, a great book that I'm currently reading, one that I would encourage you to pick up, is Andy Crouch's Playing God. And mostly it's a book about power. But this is, this is the illustration that he gives that I find to be helpful for us this morning. He talks about the fact that when we go to take lessons in a musical instrument, okay, it involves power. Somebody has something we want, we pay them for that something, and he points out that that transaction, the financial side of it, we call a zero sum. Okay? I walk away $50 poorer, he walks away $50 richer, right? That's the general way we think about power, right? There are resources, exchanging of resources changes the balance of power, but that's not the only thing that happens. We also, through the power of our instructor, are empowered to better play an instrument. And does the instructor become weaker for sharing that power? No. He actually creates more power in the world, more power to make music without any loss to himself. So there is a possibility, theoretically, conceptually, in a power that is positive, that cultivates and grows. In fact, just look at the power here. When we understand that human beings are created in the image of God, that we rule as part of his rule, when we begin with the God who created here and then see ourselves as sub-creators, then shouldn't it push us back to look at the rest of the chapter and go, what does God's dominion look like? How does God use his power? Do we see a God who feels a scarcity of power in the universe and so dominates and crushes everything else so he can have it to himself? No, we see a God who, because of his own desire, just creates the world. And not only creates the world, but creates it for life, for flourishing, for goodness, for abundance. And not only that, but authorizes creation to have their own power, to cultivate. In fact, notice the opening words here in verse 3. God's very first creative act in verse 3. And God said, let there be light. Now, I assume even if you're not a Christian this morning, you've probably heard that language. And although the Bible has been translated in English in many different versions, almost always we use that phrase, let there be light. Isn't that a weird way to say this? The reason it says this is because it is in the jussive. And that's important to us because it's not an imperative, okay? An imperative is a straight, outright command, okay? If it was a command here, it would be lights, right? Like a director, okay? But here, it's let there be light. It's in the jussive. The reason it's in the jussive is because what God does here is not just command light into existence, but he commissions light into existence. He empowers light. He authorizes light. And that's even more significant with humanity because of this idea of the image of God. He authorizes us. He deputizes us. Now, this is what I'm saying to you this morning, a couple of things. One, human beings are empowered and all power we have is God's gift. In fact, if you want to use the language of authority, all authority we express is God's authority. It's not ours of our own right. This is no king of the hill philosophy where because I'm the strongest, I make the decisions. But 
this delegation, this idea of power, is towards human flourishing. Like I said, we can see it in creation. God's authority authorizes. It empowers. It cultivates the possibility of more power. God here in creation is much more like that piano teacher than a despotic ruler. That doesn't mean there aren't rules and organized, you know, he has the power of life and death. He makes rules in the garden. But he still gives them a job. And, and this is the amazing thing about the world as we know. Go back to that idea of domination. One of the ways the Bible is often criticized is right here we have all the evidence we need for the terrible way we take advantage of the environment. Right? We rape the planet because it says right here it's ours to rape. But think about it on a smaller scale. Rose bushes are beautiful. But when you take a skilled gardener and he trims it in the right way and he fertilizes it in the right way, he doesn't make life possible, but he makes it more abundant. He makes it flourish. In fact, the idea here of of human beings is almost represented in what happens next because God gives them the whole world, but it begins with just a garden. And so they're to tend the garden. And that doesn't just mean protect it or watch it grow. It's not a wilderness. It's to be cultivated. Okay? That's how all of life is. That's how life is designed, and that requires power. Okay? Now, clearly, we're sticking to Genesis 1 and 2. All we have to do is turn the page into Genesis 3 and find out why everything goes wrong. Because we're assuming here that these human beings who are created for dominion are operating in God's power on God's behalf. We're assuming that their authority is subjected authority, right? Under God's authority, representative of him, not just operating in his stead, but on his behalf, representing his character and decisions and these types of things. But the rebellion of Genesis 3 changes everything. But before we can deal with that, we have to ask, is power good? Can it be used for good? Because if not, then our view of politics will be so pessimistic that we'll settle for this concept of domination, but since we have the right answers, but since we have a better view of humanity, the ends justify the means. Or we'll see it as something to stay pure of and we'll excuse ourselves from because that's dirty and gross and below us who know better. But you know what that breeds? It breeds irresponsibility for our neighbor. We step out and those who are being crushed by the system continue to be crushed and we turn a deft eye like the Pharisees did, like those who left the man crippled by the Jericho Road by his attack because we don't want to get our own hands dirty. So we need a good view of power. We need to understand the deputization that God has given us. And of course, this brings us to the final thing that I want to focus on this morning. Not only does, does this idea of the image of God give us a solid foundation for human dignity and value, not only does it give us this deputization, your calling as a human being is to be fruitful and multiply and have dominion in this way, to use the power God has given you to cultivate and lead to flourishing life, culture, And these things. But finally, obviously, this leads to duty. 
The idea of deputization is a job description. When we ask the question very simply, what does God want of me? The first answer the Bible gives is this one. Be fruitful and multiply. We call this the cultural mandate because it's a lot more than just having babies. Okay. Genesis begins in a garden, but Revelation ends in a garden city. And that's by design. What we have at the end of the story, the sum total of what God has done in humanity is more humans, and it is innately and inherently enculturated. Architecture. Language, clothing, music, all of these things, that is part of the plan. It's part of the design. In fact, that's one of the duties that God has given us. It's innately social because the image of God is social. Look again at verse 26. So pause for a second. Six days of creation. So far, there's a pattern. Let there be light. Let the light be separated from the darkness. Let the land be separated from the sea. Let there be sea life. And then suddenly in verse 26, let us make. Do you see the difference there? I always think of it this way. If you were watching Genesis 1 as a stage production, you would hear this voice call out into the darkness, let there be light and there would be light. Right? But when we get here, it's like behind the scenes conversation between those who are putting on the play. Let us make. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Okay, I'm suggesting two things to you. Okay, one is that built into, the, into God himself is this social reality. What we as Christians have come to call the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. When the Bible says that God is love, it doesn't just mean that God is loving, it means eternally his character has been expressing love, and that requires community. Notice here that God creates man in his own image, but he creates mankind in his own image, male and female. In other words, none of us alone is capable of fulfilling the rule to have dominion. Adam and Eve can't, can't cultivate the entire world as Adam and Eve. They need to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and then that collective community. But that social reality is directly tied to politics, isn't it? Where do we get the word politics? We get it from the Greek word polis, the city. How about civic? We get it from the Latin word civitas, the city. The whole idea of politics is based on the foundation of social interaction, of cultivating community, of being fruitful and multiplying. Okay. And that's not all, but there's also uh, a duty here to cultivate. Right? Again, when it says here to have dominion, it means to master the innate potential of the world as God's designed it. And think of all the ways we've done that. We've found plants in the world that are medicinal and harnessed their natural properties for health. We've found natural rules of the musical world and we've harnessed it for symphonies. We've found concepts of architecture and learned how to cultivate things into beauty. 
And if you take a class on architecture, the place to always begin is all of our best ideas are natural ideas, right? We take what we find in nature, and how do we design airplanes? Based on birds, right? There's a, a direct connection in these things. We are learning life and making something out of it. And there's a way to do that that is not tyrannical and is in yet is, is, is beautiful and, and even glorious. And that's by design. And so we're called to cultivate. But what does that require? It requires working together. Think of when God gives the design for the tabernacle in the book of Leviticus. Excuse me, he gives it in the book of Exodus. Uh, and two things happen. First, he lays out the plan, but then he also takes a couple of people and he imbues them with the ability to execute the plan. Head, artists, and architects of the project, right? And even there, although there is an according to plan, and it's tremendously detailed, so detailed that when you read it, you're like, I don't know what to do with this. So all of the rings are made out of silver and there's 24 on each side, what? But there's also a lot that's left open. There's still a human capacity to that. You're supposed to decorate it with pomegranates, but how many pomegranates? And if I were to decorate it with a pomegranate, it would not be as great as if some of you were to decorate it with a pomegranate, right? Due to lack of skill. And not only that, but there's a, a, even a following of the pattern here. Okay, so first it's let there be. That's envisioning, that's planning, that's describing something that does not yet exist. We do that all the time. But the next thing we do is we say, let us make. We turn to others and we say, hey, here's the plan, here's the vision. That's all built into what we're talking about this morning, the goodness of God's creation. And this duty, of course, also speaks of God's character. We cannot rightly utilize the image of God or the gift of power that God has given us or operate in our authority without being subject to his authority. We can't express our power as image of God's rightly unless it reflects the God who we image. In other words, there's a character to God, and not a lot of that character is laid out here in Genesis 1. You have to keep reading, but let me give you the three primary phrases the Old Testament uses to describe God. Righteous, just, and loving. We most image God when our power or when our authority or when our community reflects the righteousness of God, the justice of God, the love of God. That's by design, but it's also part of the duty. When we talk about what goes wrong with humanity, although we don't lose the image of God in Genesis chapter 3, although our rebellion doesn't strip us of that innate and inherent dignity, or even God's purpose and plan, it does tarnish it. It does taint it. It does bend it in a wrong direction. And the reason why that matters is because it wrongly represents God. Right? We do this in human politics all the time. Oftentimes when a subordinate authority, a middle manager, is removed, it's because his behavior doesn't reflect the decisions, the character of those who are above him. Okay. And so the problem with humanity, again, is one of rebellion, resistance, and failing 
the one job that God has given us to rightly reflect him to one another, to the angelic beings, read Ephesians, just in general, innately, to fulfill our purpose as being the image of God. And that's what's so significant about Jesus. Because when Jesus comes, he comes in the image of God. And he lives it out faithfully and perfectly. That's the reason why Colossians can say that he is the very image of God. That was human destiny. But Adam and Eve, the first two humans, don't live up to that destiny, don't fulfill that one, but Jesus does. In fact, consider Jesus' handling of power. Do we see power in the life of Jesus? Abundantly. It was one of the messages that the apostles preached, that Jesus went around with great power doing miracles. But how does he use that power? To cultivate life. Compassionately. To do goodness. In fact, when his power is opposed by the powers that be, the religious leaders in the Sanhedrin, Pilate representing Rome, Herod the king in that area, the Idumean, all of these things, does he go in with sword? Does he go in trouncing and crushing? No, he gets crucified. In fact, if we look at the cross, we have to recognize that Jesus chose a path of weakness, right? In fact, when the problems of humanity seem so deep, and remember that the Jews that Jesus is ministering to live under the thumb of the Roman Empire, empire number one, right? The greatest and most domineering empire of all time. And Jesus says, I'm here because I'm a king of a new kingdom. But how does he go about that? Like a sheep that's led to the slaughter. In weakness. In fact, it's easy to look at the crucifixion itself and call it foolishness. But Paul says it may be foolishness to the watching world, but it is what to believers? The power of God. Even there, what does Jesus do with his enemies? Does he crush them? No, he dies for them. And yet it's power the full power of who Jesus Christ was, the full expression of what it means to be human, completely and utterly lived out. And he doesn't just do it to go, y'all are getting it wrong, let me show you what it's like, and then, you know, mic drop and walk off the stage. He does it to reinvigorate, to re-empower, to restore the image of God in us, to bring us back to the place that it's supposed to be. And do you see how these three ideas together have to be the foundation of everything we're going to talk about now. Even now, if you just stop and think, you'll already see missteps we make all the time, either when we explain away or excuse political involvement or the way that we go about it. Let me tell you this, that it is not just those who have given up hope who have taken the, the Nietzsche version of power. That is Republican and Democratic politics right now every day. We think that the best way we can change the world is to stay in control or to get in control. And that the way that we shape the world is to dominate. And as long as we're at the top, everything will be okay. Or, like I said, we, we negatively resist all powers 
or we excuse ourselves from the cycle of power. But if these things are true, if God has designed us in human flourishing to be representatives of him on earth, it changes the language of all these things. But this is not enough for a political theology. We have to go, but what about the reality of the world we live in? Here's the design, here's the ideal, here's the plan, but none of us live in Genesis 1 and 2, do we? So we have to move forward. We have to lay out other pieces. Obviously here, at least I would assume you asked this question. It's the first question I asked. It defines our next sermon. Well, if everybody's supposed to do this together and equally, then why government? Why authority structures? If this is so egalitarian, why these things? And we'll deal with that next week as we look at Genesis chapter 9. But here's where I would leave you this morning. As far as I can tell, only this Christian beginning lays a foundation strong enough for human flourishing. Only the Bible is this optimistic, even though we'll see it's also, in another sense, tremendously pessimistic. Only the Bible roots us in relationship to God in such a way that it gives us dignity that it defines and empowers the purpose and that it cultivates a sense of duty that's not disconnected from God. And the last thing I want to point out is that this is so good. That's the repeated refrain of God's own assessment of creation, right? Every day he finishes and God saw what he was made and he said that it was good. And after he makes human beings, he looks at it, Adam and Eve, and he says, this is very good. This is where our view begins. Not with a burned out cynicism and frustration of the horrors of the world. Although this clearly makes the horrors worse, doesn't it? The brightness of this vision just shows the darkness of our own reality. But it also shows foundationally just as we've seen with everything else, that it begins with God's good creation, his good design, his good plan, one that is worthwhile and therefore worthy of not just thanking God for, but worshiping him for. And again, we do that when we care for the needs of those around us. We do that when we fight for justice as opposed to injustice. We do that when we collaborate together to build a better world. And you don't have to be a Christian to do these things, but we as Christians have a foundation, we have a reason, we have a subfloor that we've built on that leads to these things. Let's pray. Father, this morning we have started so far behind the starting line. 